This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. Joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing all right, Jeff. So far, no raids on my property. No raids on your house this week? Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to our topic, which is namely two news stories, one surrounding the IRS, which under the new Inflation Reduction Act is set to receive a bunch of funding and apparently going to hire about 87,000 new IRS agents, some of whom will presumably be armed, according to the job description. And also in tandem with this, the FBI's raid on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home this week, ostensibly looking for documents. We're not exactly sure what kind of documents or to what criminal matter they might refer um, because we have not yet seen as of today uh, either the warrant nor any of the particular uh, documents they were seeking under that warrant. But nonetheless, Bob, this has resulted in a frenzy of news stories. uh, And I'm afraid that a lot of even our listeners might view this as an example of administrative agencies run amok, that this is somehow outside of the norm when they get into areas of mission creep, or when they get into even outright criminality, uh, ignoring the rule of law, the so-called separation of powers, and go rogue. When in fact, uh, in our tradition of economics and others, there's a whole history of people studying this very phenomenon. People like the late James Burdham, who wrote The Managerial Revolution, obviously the public choice people, have a lot to say about what bureaucrats do in their own interests when placed into power. Um, uh, Ludwig von Mises, of course, wrote the great book Bureaucracy in the 1940s about what he called the supremacy of officialdom, uh, talking about Germany in particular. And so I don't like this idea that we're looking at this as an aberration. I think these two uh, news stories this week point out what we're really living under, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jeff. And I mean, you look at any metric you want in terms of measuring the size of government, whether it's expenditures, taxation, and not just in dollar terms, but even like as a percent of GDP, uh, you know, how many employees does the government have? Look at the separation, you know, the distinction between what the federal government does and what the state governments do. Like, I think a lot of modern Americans think the word federal means like the one in charge or the supreme or what, but you know, a federal system was supposed to mean the states are supposed to do some things in the, you know, as opposed to like a central government um, and leading to the joke that the federal reserve is neither federal nor has a reserve. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so, so one of the, I think key figures here too, besides the ones you mentioned is Bob Higgs and his so-called ratchet effect where he says, you know, in crisis and Leviathan, his great work, just studying it that, yeah, well, this always happens when there's a crisis, and this is both parties, of course, this isn't a partisan thing, that they use that opportunity to expand their power. And then once the immediate crisis passes, they do pull back a little bit, but they never go to the pre-crisis baseline. And so that's how over time, and so it, you know the, the chart of it looks like a ratchet. That's why over time the government tends to expand. And another thing to just like look at a history book. Who are the greatest presidents? It's not the ones who avoided a war. It's not the ones who had policies in places there wasn't a depression or things like that. Mm-hmm. It's the ones who expanded the scope of government. That always, always, always goes hand in hand with a so-called great president. Or you could see how many people died on their watch. That's also another way to gauge who are the historians are going to say is a great president. 
when we talk about Higgs and the ratchet effect, what's the crisis here? The, Donald Trump, that Donald Trump exists and was elected president, <laughs> that's the crisis? Right. I mean, I guess they would say, oh, January 6th. I mean, you've seen the the over-the-top rhetoric about how, you know, oh, tr- Trump is the uh, the worst threat the republic has ever faced, you know, more than Osama bin Laden, more than Adolf Hitler, more than Stalin, you know, it's, it's Donald Trump. So, yes, I, I guess in, in their mindset, they would say that. And that is, even though, you know, we would say that's that's not, that's truly a manufactured crisis. I guess that's what they would say. And, hey, he's he's got these documents. We don't even know something just before I forget to mention it. It's it was really Orwellian to me that I was watching, of course, the, the pundits react to that right after you know Trump is saying, hey, this just happened. And the, and the and one guy, one analyst said something like. Well, normally in a case like this, the FBI wouldn't say anything after they raided somebody's house. But because of the special circumstances mm-hmm. of this case, they may be forced to make a statement. And that really blew me away that, you know, the FBI could just come in and somebody's house and take their stuff and they don't even need to. I understand you wouldn't say it ahead of time if it's supposed to be a surprise and, you know, you want to catch the mobster with his pants down sort of thing. But it, it really just struck me that that's the, you know, the baseline that the, the you know, he, he thought it was a no big deal that the FBI would go into someone's private house, take stuff. And that, oh, in this case, they may even tell the public what it's for. Well, as far as Trump being the greatest threat to our republic, I wonder if people remember in the War of 1812, the British burned down the White House. (laughs) I mean, you know, presumably that would not fly today. I don't think the Brits have that uh, in the works anytime soon with their next PM. But nonetheless, it's interesting how things are so politicized now. And maybe this is a healthy thing from our perspective that there's immediately both sides-ism, and immediately it's as though Americans are watching two different movies. And so David French, of all people, over at the flaccid National Review, he immediately issued a couple tweets. Given that we haven't seen the warrant, much less the warrant application, the immediate frenzied anger at the FBI is completely unjustified. You know, there's no reason to believe a former president is above the law. Well, what is this, kindergarten, conjunction, junction, after-school special? Every president's been above the law basically since the beginning of American history, for one. And then he goes on, if the DOJ's actions turn out to be unjustified, then responsible agents should be held accountable. Yes, and um, we should all get a new bike for Christmas. You know, it's this kind of credulity on on behalf of, I guess we'll call him a a pretty good embodiment of conservative ink. It's just... It's so absurd. And I actually think um, as much as I hate the politicization of everything, something like this, which is inherently mm-hmm. political, a sitting president basically sicking his Justice Department on, a, on the, the, not only the former president, but the right. one most likely right. to run against him again. I mean, you can't escape politics in this context. I think it's healthy that the American people immediately look at this and give zero credence to the idea that Merrick Garland is simply a nonpartisan rule of law guy following the evidence wherever it takes him. And he doesn't care about the timing of this or the media or the appearance or anything else. You know, nobody's buying that, even if it's maybe true, infinitesimally possible that that is what's happening. You know, nobody's buying that. And maybe that's a measure of success it, for people who view politics the way we do, that the, even the normies in American society have become so jaded about it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that is a sign of progress because it's closer to the truth. Like you say, is it is it literally impossible that he's just following the law? I suppose not. But in practice, no, I, I don't believe that for a second. Of course, 
this is political. Of course, the timing of this rate. Now, I don't know, and maybe you want to speculate about this too, is part of what we talk about today, Jeff, but I don't know exactly what the calculations are in terms of, you know, how does this affect what what the voters do going into this election? You know, is it is the plan really so that Trump is in prison so he can't run mm-hmm. for office or is this just supposed to cast out, you know, who knows, is this supposed to motivate people so they get out and vote? I don't I don't know exactly what the calculation is in terms of the politics and the fallout. Um, but but certainly, yeah, the idea that this had nothing to do with that and they had no idea. I mean, that's just I mean, did you see the clip Jeff, with the, the press secretary when, when she was acting like what, what the, in this so-called the raid or whatever you want to know? The, the White House had no knowledge of this beforehand. Mm-hmm. And it, she was acting like even after it happened, they didn't even know what, what you guys are talking about. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it, it's they're they're not even good liars. Well, it's possible that intentionally the White House was not briefed. In other words, there were some back-channel communication. They said, make sure it looks like we didn't have anything to do with this. You know, that's entirely possible. Um, as to the end game here, it's complex. I wrote an article today about this. You know, sure, clearly there's been a war against Trump and Trumpism since the day he won the election over Hillary Clinton. And that initially took the form of Russiagate, and it's taken the forms of all kinds of things, impeachment since then. So clearly— there is a war afoot against Trumpism. And so this could be viewed as a warning against Trump and his associates by the Garland people, by the Justice Department, by the FBI to say, look, you know, don't get ahead of yourself with these electoral dreams of 2024 because we could still bring you down. We could still imprison you. We could still take all of your family's wealth, destroy the Trump empire. I mean, these are certainly possibilities. Um We will link to a great article by Jonathan Turley, who's a law prof up at George Washington, who blogs uh, very frequently on all of this kind of thing. And he laid out the case. There's a case under the 14th Amendment where if Trump was deemed to have participated in in an insurrection on January 16th, he would be disqualified under, I guess it's uh, uh, the third clause, Article 3 of that, of of the 14th Amendment. I, I might be wrong. It might be Article 4 of it. Um, where he would be disqualified from holding office. There's also a federal statute dealing with removal of uh, classified items, um, which Turley cites, which maybe creates a more dubious um, rationale for preventing Trump even from running. So, you know, that's that's sort of the obvious idea behind what's going on here, the politicization of the Justice Department and the FBI in service of the current administration, which is nothing at all new, nothing at all. Uh, I mean, go back and read the history of J. Edgar Hoover, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's sometimes not always the case is that the FBI and the Justice Department are working on behest of the current president, but rather against the current president. They have certainly been known to do that. So, uh, yes, there's a case that this is all a political warning shot across the bow to try to uh, dissuade Trump from running or to even prevent him from running by throwing him in jail or having him deemed in, in, unfit under the 14th Amendment. Um, I, I think that might be a bit much. I think this is more a general softening up. I mean, the idea here is to not only harm Trump's political chances, but also those of the MAGA movement he created, mm-hmm. or at least uh, was a symbol of, the, the populist movement. They want to say that you know, not only are certain candidates, but certain ideas are beyond the pale. They're, they're outside of the bounds of the three-by-five card of acceptable opinion. We need to, actually, we need to basically criminalize those. 
If you're an election denier, for example, that note, note the coded language to, to imply right. you're like a Holocaust denier. An election denier is someone who questions the results in Georgia or some other state. Uh, an insurrectionist is someone who went to the Capitol on January 6th to protest the election, whereas an Antifa rioter who burned down a police station in Wisconsin or who basically shut down a federal courthouse in Seattle, Washington, for months on end is not an insurrectionist. Uh, a person who questions this Trump-Russian collusion BS around the 2016 election is a Putin fanatic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I mean, so all of this is designed to move us towards criminalizing certain thoughts and also putting people outside the bounds of acceptable society. And so if you push this hard enough, the idea or the goal is to say, look, you know, when it comes to presidential elections, you can vote for a Mitt Romney, you can vote for a Hillary Clinton, you can maybe vote for a Ted Cruz or a Scott Walker on the margins, but that's about it. You know, that, that's, that's who you're allowed to vote for and not, not another Donald Trump. And so uh, I think that's motivating a lot of this. And that's what's so scary, of course, about these administrative agencies and the managerial revolution of the 20th century. And, and I want to get into that a little bit, what, what James Burnham had to say, say about that and what Mises had to say about it, because I think they'd be surprised uh, by the degree to which this has overtaken us. Well, yeah, you raise a lot of interesting points there. I, I do want to just stress, I, I know most of the listeners know this, but it is possible to think that Trump did things that were illegal or unethical, let's say, and that the FBI is acting politically and this isn't about, you know, the institution of justice. And that's sort of the thing that um, amazes me when you watch these debates on social media is that, the, you know, the uh, when someone's complaining about the FBI doing this, the other side naturally, oh, so you think Trump is just a goody two-shoes and, you know, Boy Scout? And no. But clearly, you know, you could have one without the other. And also what's just shocking to me about all this, it well, not shocking, but it, it's in, insane, is how so many progressive leftists all of a sudden don't think the FBI would ever harass someone unless mm -hmm. they're a, a bad guy when, you know, they famously were investigating and, you know, had Martin Luther King in their crosshairs. Look what happened to Richard Jewell. You know, certainly the FBI, you know, they weren't the bastions of justice at that, at that point. And also, I would say, even with respect to Trump, if people don't know about this, go look at the, the inspector general's report on what the FBI was doing when they had their um, FISA applications to look at the, you know, tr the members of the, of the Trump election team. Uh, so the report came, I think, in December 2019. Um, and just go mm -hmm. look at that. So again, this isn't like you're having to rely on something coming from some right wing news outlet. Just go read the inspector general's own report. So the media coverage of it was very misleading. But if you actually just read the report, it's jaw dropping. This the way that the FBI, when they were applying for continued, you know, the continued legal ability to, to wiretap or other electronic means of spying on the Trump team. You know, they clearly were withholding key information from, you know, the judge and, and everything in those applications. And, and the IG report kind of says they did that and then just moves on. So it's it's how this, this, this stuff happens when there's audits in Washington is if you want to go see it, they, they tell you what they did. But then they just act like it was no big deal and they move on with their lives. So all that is there for anyone who wants to see it. So Trump defenders who are saying the FBI is out to get them, they have a pretty strong leg to stand on. They're not just grasping at straws. And like you said, too, Jeff. The double standards is hilarious that, remember, it was going into the original election between Trump and Hillary Clinton, people, Democrats, were afraid that Trump was going to say the election was stolen, 
And so they were really, you know, making sure, let's get on record. This is going to be the cleanest election in history. Come on, don't listen to this double talk. And also the phrase fake news was originally used by the left to denounce like, you know, memes and stuff going around Facebook, making fun of Hillary Clinton or saying she did something with her emails. That's where the term fake news came from. And Trump just grabbed it ironically and turned it on CNN that he didn't coin that phrase. So it is funny how now things have gotten switched. And like you say, Jeff, the very idea of questioning whether someone won an election is now it's not just wrong, but it's like a sign that, you know, you should be excluded from the conversation. It's really amazing. Well, it's also a matter of selective enforcement. Federal law is so complex, so Byzantine, you could presumably go after any president. Trump certainly is not the first president or people around him are not the first people around a president to depart office and take some documents with them. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so the statute, which Jonathan Turley discusses in the article we'll link, I mean, could presumably be applied to any former president just about. And a lot of former cabinet members over the years, a lot of CIA people we know have taken documents out of secure storage. Um, so that's a mess. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about James Burnham. A lot of you know him as the as the uh, uh, author of the Machiavellians, and he was a, a National Review stalwart in the mid-century and wrote a lot about managerialism and administrative state. So if you read Burnham, you'll realize that he had, takes a very sort of cold-blooded look at the reality of administrative bureaucracies rather than an ideological or romantic look at them. And basically, you know, what he comes up with is a bit of a challenge, I think, to libertarians because we tend to still cling to the idea that there's a basic choice, the economic means or uh, or the uh, political means. Those are the two ways to organize society. That roughly comes down as socialism versus capitalism, and there is no third way. Neoliberalism or a mixed economy or all these other things don't really represent a third way. But I think uh, Burnham points out that managerialism – and he's writing this in the 1940s, early 1941, actually, is when he comes out with um, the managerial revolution. You know, that almost does start to look like a third way. And let me just quote a little bit from, from his book. Again, this is 1941. It's pretty prescient thinking about it. So what he's talking about is, is the result is a fused political economic apparatus – And quoting Burnham, he says, fusion of the economy with the state, expansion of the state functions to comprise also control of the economy, offers whether or not the managers individually recognize it, the only available means on the one hand for making the economic structure workable again after its capitalist breakdown. So again, Burnham was no right-wing ideologue loving capitalism. On the other, for putting managers in the position of the ruling class. The managers will shift the locus of sovereignty, nice phrase, from parliamentary assemblies representing the capitalist caste to the administrative bureaus of the expanded state. The executive branch and its bureaucracy will undermine the older assemblies and intermediary institutions in the Congress, the state legislatures, local governments, and independent organizations. So he's basically predicting in 1941, which is already, you know, already in motion, especially with the New Deal a decade earlier, but the, is that basically the legislative branch yields to the executive And boy, oh boy, that's how you get things like 87,000 new IRS agents without much of a peep from Congress. Right. And also, too, I think, you know, he did anticipate, I think even the quote there, you just had some some hints of this, that, yeah, the the people running these large bureaucratic, nominally private sector organizations, you know, they would sort of ally with some of the people, you know, in the executive branch. And that would be this new form of social control, whatever you want to call it. And that's certainly the model going forward. I mean, that's, 
that's partly we've talked about this in earlier episodes, Jeff, you know, with this, uh, you know, the kind of system that they're inaugurating in China and that is being copied around the around the West where big companies kind of know what the what in the U.S., like what Washington wants, and then they can set their own policies. And so technically, oh, it's just a policy of a Fortune 500 company. Hey, that's private property. They can do whatever they want, you know, like whether mm-hmm. it's a vaccine passport or what have you. Um, uh, oh, you know, you're you're not making investments the right way that, you know, according to certain criteria, well, then you can get dinged in China. You know, if you criticize the party, you might not just go to jail, but you now you can't get a hotel room. And why does the hotel yeah. room do that? Because then, you know, there's a hierarchy of your social credit score. And so, yes, at some point in, the, in that chain, there is the coercion of the Chinese Communist Party using government guns. But a lot of it is just everybody in that system kind of just keeping their head down. And so it is a, a way that, you know, sort of blending state and pr- private, you know, in a way that clearly is not free in some abstract sense of that term. But it is it's tricky for like a, you know, a dogmatic libertarian to get in that, you know, what I mean, because, again, they was, well, it's, it's a private company. They can do what they want. But, you know, in the in the context of what of the overall scheme. So if that's the kind of stuff he he's getting at there, I think he's he's right. And. I, I do have now more sympathy, Jeff, with people who say, yeah, you guys, you libertarians can talk about your laissez-faire society, but it's not stable. We don't have it. And, you know, maybe that's unfair. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, we got to educate the public or whatever. But, you know, I can see how they would recoil against that because that's what a Marxist would say. Like, oh, yeah, we tried in the Soviet Union. It didn't work. But that's, well, you know, because we just didn't get it right. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not a knock against the theory. So both sides are going to say that. I happen to think our theory is right. But... Well, there's also Burnham's idea that the managerial class shares uh, all kinds of commonalities that they don't share with average people. And those commonalities cross over from government uh, managers to private sector managers, so Mm -hmm. ostensibly, but also across national borders. In other words, the managerial elite in France have far more to do with the managerial elite in America than they do with their own French constituents ostensible constituency. So I think that's that's an interesting point. Um, Mises, of course, wrote this little slim book, Bureaucracy, in 1944. We did a show on it a few years back, and I recall Bill Anderson, who's one of our editors at Mises.org, he made the interesting point that in 1944, uh, paper was rationed. So slim little books were were, <laughs> were what you did back then. So this is a great little read, just a little over 100 pages. We'll link to it if people want to. But it's really, um, you know, Mises really talks about how uh, the supremacy of officialdom is how he described bureaucracy in Germany, how it would come to the fore. And he's writing this, you know, a couple decades after socialism and after liberalism and nation-state and economy. So now we're getting into, into World War II, and he's realizing what's happening. Uh, and so he's got some great quotes here. Here's one. On the other hand, we must realize that delegation of power is the main instrument of modern dictatorship. So that's a pretty heavy-duty um, sentence right there. And he gets into a lot of conditions of what bureaucracy brings us. And he basically says that you know, the administrative society becomes part and parcel of any totalitarian scheme because you don't just have uh, jackbooted thugs kicking in doors in the middle of the night. You have bureaucrats sort of grinding people with paperwork. 
So mm-hmm. they're, they're both elements of, of overreach or a totalitarian society. And, you know, I wonder what that means in context with this IRS thing. Uh, most people, Bob, think of IRS agents as, um, you know, accountants or tax enrolled agents who are going to bother you and, and have a little petty power trips and might force you to track down a piece of paper and then end up giving you a big fine. But they don't so much think of them as armed agents like FBI agents. But now we're finding out that that's, you know, they're getting closer. Yeah, well, I I know, so I'll, I'll withhold his name for privacy reasons, but I'm good friends with a businessman who said, this was years ago in the 80s, and he was way behind. It was after there was a big crash, and he was way behind on what he owed the IRS. And he said someone from the IRS came in to, to, to meet with him to discuss you know, your case, sir. And the guy was very courteous and everything, but he said in the beginning of the meeting, the guy pulled a sidearm off and put it on the table just to make sure everyone knew there's a gun in the room. <laughs> you know, that's, so that, that is a, you know, an intimidation tactic that apparently has been used. Uh, and and be, another thing, too, it's a minor point, but um, I think people are, are, a lot of people analyzing this, they're not seeing like the, the cause and effect or, or like the looking ahead that is, Oh, you know, the, the, the agents, you know, the people enforcing the law, they don't set the policy. It's, you know, the Congress does that, whatever, but they also, Congress knows what they can get away with. And so, you know, in terms of if they, like you and I know, Jeff, just how bad the fiscal position of the U S federal government is, especially going forward, especially if there's another crash. So, you know, knowing it, it, oh, well, if we we have to tighten up the screws and, and jack up the top tax rate and so on and, you know, get rid of some of these uh, deductions or clamp down on these things, you know, we, we need to first get in a whole influx of, of bodies, give them a few years, you know, to learn the ropes and figure out what they're doing. And then we can really be in a position to jack up those rates. Whereas, you know, with the existing enforcement infrastructure, they know, well, if we did that, you know, most of the people would just slip away. So, it's it, the, the two go hand in hand. It's um, it, it, like just as an analogy, when people say like, hey, should uh, you know, should should prisoners be allowed to like like what if someone gives up a kidney? Can they get a reduction in their sentencing? You know, like if, mm-hmm. if it's voluntary. Right. And as you know, and among other possible things of answering that, I would say, no, that's horrifying because the judges would know that when they were giving the sentences out in the first place. Right. Like, in other words, you can't just assume that that the one is fixed and then this is just something that's added on to it. So yeah, the existing tax code that we have is going to be more draconian given that now they have 87,000 new agents coming on to enforce it. Well, and let's not kid ourselves, folks. If you're in the top five or 10% of wealthiest Americans, you're never going to meet with an IRS agent. That agent is going to meet with your team of lawyers from Skadden Arps or some firm like that. And they're going to have nice suits on and they're going to run circles around this poor guy. I mean, unless there was some case of intentional fraud or something like that, where the IRS might be able to haul the actual taxpayer into a deposition or something, but very unlikely. So, you know, it's going to be people of average means who have to deal with the IRS personally. So that's first and foremost. Uh, Second of all, all, you know, the, the field of federal law is so vast that almost all bills passed by Congress have enabling legislation contained in them, which basically says that the particular department or agency charged with enacting or, excuse me, with carrying out the particular laws can issue such treasury directives, treasury regulations as required to carry it out. So the the vast bulk of actual 
dictates under which you and I are supposed to live on the federal level are actually written by the administrative agency personnel themselves to carry out legislation, broad, sweeping legislation passed by Congress. So the nuts and bolts, the details are very much up to the administrative agencies. And and when you start talking about arming these guys or gals, I I mean, this is just – if you talk to police officers, they will tell you on, on most police forces only have to qualify on their handguns once a year. And so contrary to popular image, most cops are very bad shots. They're just not very proficient with their weapons. They rarely, if ever, use them, and they only really have to train or qualify on them once a year. That's a broad statement, but, but in bulk. So imagine how much worse it would be when you're not even talking about a police officer whose gun may be something that they could conceivably need in danger. I mean, giving the IRS officer a gun is just purely an intimidation. It's like, you know, it's like Barney Fife or something. So this is, this is pretty unholy. And, you know, you wonder what, you know, what will become of this. I mean, everything we put in place today uh, can, can become wildly um, evil in the future. If you go back and read Truman's, Harry Truman's biography, he didn't write a, a normal biography. He sat down with a journalist and allowed that journalist to interview him a friendly journalist, and put that out in biography form, autobiography form almost. And it's interesting because Truman says, you know, well, at the time they sold me on the creation of the CIA as, uh, a, you know, a, a way to streamline government. Presidents were getting too many intelligence reports, one from the Army, one from the Navy, one from the OSS, one from the FBI, you know, I'm getting too many of these intelligence reports and we need an agency whose job is to sit down and comb through all this information and present one report to the president every month or whatever it might be. And this will actually streamline the process. And so he said, well, I kind of bought that hook, line and sinker. He said, little did I realize it would quickly become an entity unto itself. And, and as we all know, the CIA has turned on members of Congress uh, and threatened them. It's turned on members of the U.S. Supreme Court. It's probably turned on presidents. I'll just say probably and qualify that a bit. Um, and, and so kudos to Harry Truman for having the honesty, not all that much later in life before he died, to say, yeah, I made a mistake in creating the CIA. And, and you know, imagine what this could create. Uh, imagine what the IRS could become if America keeps – getting more and more politicized. Yeah, I think you mentioned the public school, uh, public choice school of thought and, the, you know, that that what do they do that in that uh, arena of economics? They just look at incentives and what what do the people want to just like standard economics looks at uh, firms and assumes they're trying to maximize shareholder value or profit. And they look at consumers or they're trying to maximize utility, blah, blah, blah. And what do government officials do? And if you're the head of an agency, you know, as a first approximation, let's just model it that you're trying to expand the scope or the, you know, the budget or the number of employees that your agency has. And that's a pretty good first approximation. So, yeah, in practice, there's other things going on, just like in practice, firms care about, the, you know, the people running them care about things besides profit. But you can understand why that's, a, you know, a first approximation just to see how it works. And the other thing, too, is it's it's not so much that the people are inherently of that mindset, but that the kind of person that gets promoted up in the ranks, right? So there's a selection process. So it's not that literally everyone who goes to Washington is a monster, 
But mm-hmm. if you're going to ascend the ranks and be a senator 30 years later, probably you're not a Boy Scout. Like you just the way the system is, you would not have been able to navigate and, and go through all that stuff. So that's, um, you know, there's there's that element involved, too. So, yes, who is more likely to become the head of the FBI? It's not someone who wants to shrink it, you know, just as a general mm-hmm. rule just of, of mm-hmm. any organization. And it happens to be true. So, in other words. You can see how, you know, the, someone who becomes the, the head of a research division in a private company, they're probably not going to shut it down. No. How do you build your legacy is you expand it and you, you know, so why would you assume that would all of a sudden be different when it comes to the course of state? Well, can you elaborate a little bit more on how public choice views the choices facing a bureaucrat and how they act in self-interested ways, just as we imagine that private sector actors do? Sure. So... Like if they're, it depends what they're modeling. So if they're modeling like a politician, then they assume that they want to get reelected. And so then you can, you know, push that back. I said, okay, they want to get, you know, they want to appeal to the median voter. And there's all sorts of theorems and things like that in terms of the models of public choice. But yeah, if they're looking at someone who's not directly elected, but is the head of an organization, then, you know, they, again, they just take it as a first approximation. What is it? What are we assuming that they're trying to do? And they'd say, oh, they're trying to maximize their their budget or they're trying to maximize like the number of employees that, you know, their organization holds. And then empirically, if you look at that, that certainly seems to be the case. And and again, you can push it back one step and say, well, why would that be? And it's partly because, you know, if if someone if you were the kind of person that thought the FBI was a stain on American society, you probably don't want a career at the FBI. So, you, mm-hmm. you know, there's you would never have the experience to get appointed to be, you know, the, the, the head of the FBI. Or if you were someone who hated the FBI, you're not going to be put in charge of it. Right. And so th- mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the, the logic of, of seeing that. And then, you know, somebody who who is successful, someone who has the ability and the interest in getting a bigger budget for the FBI, let's say, like they know how to schmooze the right people in Congress. They know how to lean on certain people. Maybe they go and get like, you know, Hoover's supposedly, you know, having used that ability to get really incriminating tapes on certain key congressmen and just let them know, boy, it'd be a shame if this were to hit the New York Times, wouldn't it? That, you know, that's that's how you you stay in, in power, right? So somebody who's willing to do that and play dirty is likely to, you know, be reappointed and stay there and over time grow the agency. The more budget you have, the more ability you have to do things like that, right? So it, it all kind of goes hand in hand, or like with the CIA even more so because they have a more of a scope to do things clandestinely. So, you know, once the CIA is sort of given this carte blanche that, oh yeah, you guys can do stuff, just kind of, you know, don't get caught. And we know you're funding things that aren't even on the books. And you, you know, you got guys that are, you know, maybe (laughs) violating the 10 commandments in different countries and whatever, just don't get caught. Don't embarrass us. That kind of rogue agency is going to do all sorts of stuff. You know, once you, you let them go off on their own like that. So it's again, one just, I guess the, the thing with public choice is all they're saying is let's be as cynical with government officials as we are with people who run private sector corporations. And then the rest kind of follows naturally because there's less constraints on, or I should say fewer constraints on government officials. So we know names like Tulloch um, in um, public choice. We know names like Buchanan in public choice, whom Nancy McLean famously attacked after the poor guy was dead. Who are, who are the big public choice names today who might be writing about this? Would you consider Tyler Cowen a public choice school member today? I mean, I can't really think off the top of my head who I would, who I would pigeonhole as public choice today or the, or the top public choice economist. So it's... 
I'm not sure like who would if, if somebody would say like, oh, wh- what am I? I am public choice, like, you know, card mm-hmm. carrying. This is this is who I am. And that's how I identify. Um, you know, would, would they have that as their pronouns on Twitter? I'm not sure. But certainly um, the, the George Mason school if you, like if you go to get a phd in economics at george mason yes you're you're not just learning you you do learn austrian stuff but they also really mm-hmm. stress the public choice school um so yeah anybody coming out of the gme gmu pipeline uh, is well acquainted with with that well it's interesting i wonder if this is a bit of a hindrance for the austrian school if you look at for example the way uh, man economy and state by Rothbard, the way human action by Mises are, are laid out as books. They sort of start with this idea of acting man, and then they start, they get into catalactics and they talk about man acting in an economy and barter and exchange and trade, and then they get into money. And then later on, they come in with interventionism or, or even full socialism. And that's, you know, Mises has a whole section called the hampered market economy before he gets into full socialism. So, um, you know, it's almost like, Government or central banks are these overlays that come along later, where most uh, economic schools of thought, they just view government as a given, mm-hmm. and it's kind of woven into the analysis from from point A, right? I mean, throughout, it's like, well, yeah, of course we're going to have these bureaucracies, so how can we make them good? You know, whereas the Austrian mindset is to view that as this outside agent, almost like a cancer that comes in. And so, you know, maybe we're not as adept at disabusing people of the wisdom of this approach because we're, again, always falling back to the, well, that's not real laissez-faire. You know, that you've got mm-hmm. a central bank. Right. So I I think the, the the logical approach that, like, Rothbard does where he first analyzes, you know, act, action per se of the isolated individual, then with more people, and let's first assume it's voluntary, and then we later relax that assumption and blah, blah, blah. I think that does make sense. But, however, I would say... I do think some Austrians, be, because there's, I don't know, you know, I only believe in Austrian economics. That's all I'm going to read. I don't need to, you know, concern myself with the work of Niskanen or whoever. I do think there are some insights that that they do miss out on. So now, in fairness, the stuff that the public choice school focuses on, you know, what, is it like praxeology per se? Maybe not. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, like I said, there are certain results, like like things about, you know, appealing to the median voter. And there's things that maybe some would just say, well, that's so obvious we didn't need some PhD to point it out to us. But things like, you know, why is it that the politicians are more radical, you know, during the primaries and then they moderate, mm-hmm. and, you know, things like that. But I mean, that's just one example. But to show, you know, that they do model things. And so there are, um, I, I guess, yeah, that there's results in the public choice school that I think Austrians who've never looked at that, you know, they could benefit from reading it, but it's not that you would need to throw out your Austrian framework. It's just, Oh yes. We're going to make specific assumptions about how people, what they value or what they're, what they're going after, what their goals are. Then, you know, this, this school offers some ways of analyzing the situation that maybe I hadn't thought of before. Well, let's finish on this. Let's talk about the rule of law, which Merrick Garland uh, has brought up of late and which people like David French at National Review are clinging to. Now, we could link to any number of articles on Mises.org that would say, oh, you know, this has always been a fantasy and rule of law has never really existed. And there's always been all these malevolent actors and special deals for uh, state-connected cronyists and yada, yada. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, America is wealthier 
and better than many parts of the world because we have had reasonably robust and predictable property rights, reasonably robust and predictable uh, dispute litigation uh, procedures in, in our you know, state, local, federal courts. I mean, we have had more rule of law than, let's say, Venezuela in the past 25 years. So it's not, it's not just a complete chimera. I mean, are we in a dangerous period now where everybody views, let's say, the Trump thing, regardless of which side you're on, everyone views it so cynically mm-hmm. that we risk, you know, not understanding what's happening in America and, and that, you know, when we talk glibly about, well, we're going to have a civil war, we're going to have a national divorce. I certainly am an advocate of the latter, not the former. Um, are we naive in the sense that we've actually had it pretty good because we've enjoyed, uh, you know, somewhat of, of a robust rule of law as opposed to a banana republic? So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right on that, Jeff, that certainly if Americans, uh, you know, American libertarian types th- that really haven't been abroad too much, if they just dismiss it, oh, yeah, this is all a, a joke. It's, you know, the, the monopoly state can do whatever they want and what, that it, you're, it, they're just a criminal organization, period. I think that is wrong because it's, you know, what you're overlooking and, you know, and, and Rothbard and stuff gets into this. So it's not that you, you could think that their, their, mor- their moral justification is nothing more than, you know, a criminal organization. But the, what sets the state apart from a mere gang is that in the eyes of the public, they do have some form of legitimacy. And, and it's true, as you say, Jeff, like that legitimacy is is shrinking by the day, depending on, you know, which party's in power. And then, you know, a different 40% of the public now doesn't think they're legitimate. So that that is shrinking. But I mean, that's what, what distinguishes it. And in terms of, you know, Mises wrote a lot about the importance of public opinion. You know, he had statements saying in the long run, there can be no such thing as an unpopular government. And at first that sounds like, what are you talking about, Mises? That's crazy. But when you see what he means by that, so he's, and again, for people that have never thought that way, why even the most totalitarian dictators, they have a tight control over the news, over, you know, the internet now in the modern age, over the schools. So if it was just all a matter of who has the most tanks and guns, you wouldn't care what your people thought. But no, it's in precisely the most closed societies where they really control the flow of information because the dictator above all people knows how tenuous his power really is that there's millions of people there's only a few thousand of his inner circle and or even the inner circle could just turn on him and kill him in his sleep if they thought he was taking the country in a bad direction so you know that that that's public opinion really is important and shaping those ideas and that's why the intellectual elite holding up the government is really very important in the long run why ideas are so important and in the long run. So yeah, as, as far as rule of law though, Jeff, I think you're right that some um, like American Rothbardian type, especially younger people, they might be a little bit too quick to dismiss everything as, oh, it's all a bunch of garbage if they haven't been uh, abroad. But it is also the case that, yeah, what we do have here is I think eroding fast. It, it just for just a quick example, like in terms of journalism that yes, yeah, CNN was always biased, but before mm-hmm. Trump came along, they at least, pretended that they were being objective. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, after Trump really marked a turning point in my mind of just how divided the news cycle so that now it really is the case that Fox is talking to one part and CNN's talking to a different part or MSNBC, whatever you want to say. And, you know, it's even the basic facts are getting, you know, it's, it's not just that we're all agreeing on what happened on January 6th and we're disagreeing about the interpretation or the significance. It's that, no, one side is saying it was... 
uh, an insurrection and the other side saying, yeah, it was a riot or it was a crowd kind of went run amok or what have you. Like it's really what people are thinking of is what happened or Trump praised Nazis in the one speech and the other side saying, no, he was actually disavowing them. What are you talking about? Like it's people can't even agree on what the basic facts of, of history are. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, or let's say the next week when we find out more about maybe the specifics of this warrant. Maybe the Trump lawyers will reveal it at some point. But it's also going to be interesting to watch whether this emboldens Trump and Trump supporters to run again, or whether this is sort of the beginning of the end for him in terms of his electoral hopes for 2024. And in the meantime... Uh, we will link to Mises' Bureaucracy, which is a fascinating book. You, you can read it in a very short uh, period just over this weekend for free online at Mises.org. We'll link to that really interesting article by Jonathan Turley that talks through some of the legal angles of the 14th Amendment and federal statutes on what might disqualify Trump. And uh, in the interim, we'll just hope that none of you get raided by the FBI or audited by the IRS. And so, Bob and everybody else, have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.